Grace, mercy, and peace be to you from God our Father and our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, this past week I was listening to some new songs that Apple Music generated for me on my iPhone. It's based on my, la- my past listening habits. So you got to watch out this technology. They hear everything you do and they see everything that you do. Uh, it could be a little dangerous. Um, oh, thanks. Trimming me down a little bit. Well, out of the 100 million songs at their disposal, no, no exaggeration, that's how many they uh, have at their disposal, 100 million songs. There is one that uh, they recommend that really caught my attention. Because of its opening, the song is entitled Choice of Color. And it's by the 1960s soul group by the name of The Impressions. Anybody heard of The Impressions? Oh, Couple back there. Well, some of you may be more familiar with their, the band's lead singer, Curtis Mayfield, uh, who went on to have a successful solo career with hits like Superfly. Yeah? All right. Yeah, you guys do 70s music all the time anyway in your band. But this song, Choice of Color, would also be an apt uh, re-release today, I believe, because of all the racial tension going on in our nation. Back when the song first came out, it was the civil rights movement that was in full swing. One could probably argue a good case for either time period, 1968 versus today, being the more volatile time period, because they both really are to extremes these, these days when it comes to racial tensions. So this song then, Choice of Color, opens with a question. If you had a choice of colors, which one would you choose, my brothers? Now, that got me thinking. Got me thinking about our gospel lesson today. It's a rhetorical question, isn't it? Which color would you choose? Because none of us has any ability to choose what skin color we're going to be born with, right? We're brought into this world without any say whatsoever as to who our parents are, um, where we're going to live, including what country we're born into, and thus what nation will welcome us into their, uh, the citizenry as a newborn citizen. It's all out of our control, as hard as that is, for the adult versions of ourselves to accept. And as you go down the list of things, socioeconomic status, health predispositions according to your inherited DNA, you finally get to the question of religion, your faith. For example... If you happen to be born in the mountains of Tibet, would you be a Buddhist today? Born in Indonesia? A Muslim, maybe? And if you're born in the Mumbai metropolitan region, along with 23 million other people, would you be going to a Hindu temple to worship instead of a Lutheran church? Raises another question, too. Does geography necessarily dictate your religion? Well, since I use the word dictate, let's start with that. If you happen to be born sometime or somewhere in the world under a dictatorship, you may very well be told that you do not have any choice as to what religion you're going to practice. In some Islamic states today, if you were born into a Muslim family, you are forbidden to convert out and then into, say, Christianity, or any other religion for that matter. For example, in Saudi Arabia, you might try to convert to Christianity, but if you're caught, 
That's the death penalty for you. You're dead. The blessing for those brave Christian martyrs in those situations who are under such intense persecution, um, it's their baptism that unites them with the resurrected Lord Jesus Christ. That is their hope, as it is our hope, our only hope. By his death and his resurrection from the dead, Jesus has overcome this world with all its tensions and strifes and mismanagement. And we can all take comfort in that promise to our own deathbeds, wherever they are, uh, whenever they might be. As St. Paul tells Timothy, if we endure hardship, we will reign with Christ. That's good news. So knowing how some Christians in this world are suffering then, that should give us all the more reason to pray for our brothers and sisters scattered around the world, that their faith would indeed endure to the end. Geography then doesn't necessarily dictate one's faith. You could also ask the 100 million underground Christians in China, right? 100 million, a huge number. But as prevalent as persecution is with Christians around the world, there is still a greater enemy yet to contend with. Last Sunday, we talked about the devil who tempted Jesus in the desert. And he gave it his demonic best to get Jesus to sin. Just a little bit, just a thought or a word. Only to be told by Jesus in the end, be gone, Satan. That leaves now only one remaining great area, uh, enemy, excuse me, of the Christian faith. Ourselves. We ourselves round out that unholy trinity. The world, the devil, and our flesh, our sinful nature. Unlike Jesus telling off the devil, we cannot sim- simply command our sinful nature to be gone, fle- uh, flesh. It just doesn't work that way, unfortunately. It's more sticky. It sticks to us. It's sticky and icky. And you know that hymn, Chief of Sinners Though I Be? That's taken straight out of Paul's letter to Timothy, where Paul writes, This is a faithful and saying, and a wor- it's worthy of all acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am chief. Paul brings it right out in the open. I'm the chief sinner. And to the Romans, Paul also writes about this internal battle that he's constantly waging within himself. And he says, although I want to do good, evil is right there with me. And he confesses, what a wretch, what a wretched man I am. That's Paul. Now, please notice in both those confessions, he says, I am chief of sinners. Oh, wretched man that I am. Paul is using the present tense there. It's an ongoing reality. And he's not saying, oh, I used to be so bad, but ever since my baptism, I am now only good all the time. I wouldn't believe anyone except Jesus who would utter a phrase like that. So he doesn't say that. So if Paul, or St. Paul, as we know him, still struggled much with the enemy within his own flesh, then we ought not to expect to score a perfect 300 in bowling down all our sinful impulses that keep raising their ugly pinheads. We just had bowling nights, so thinking in bowling metaphors here. And we're going to continue to struggle with all those sinful impulses until Christ comes again. 
And that's finally when we will experience the full redemption of our bodies, our decaying bodies. And at that triumphant time, we will all be changed finally in the twinkling of an eye. The Apostle Paul, whose letters we read in the New Testament, 13 in total, that's where we see the mature Paul. Years after his Damascus Road conversion, but in the person of Nicodemus today, who we're looking at in our gospel lesson, we see another Pharisee, but at a completely different stage in his spiritual journey. While somehow being drawn to Jesus and willing to learn from Jesus, Nicodemus at this point is not yet a believer in Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus himself points this out in our gospel lesson, verse 12. If I have told you earthly things, Jesus asks Nicodemus, and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? So he says, you don't believe. You're not a believer. So um, he certainly is not one yet. But at the, the start, the very top verse one of our gospel lesson, there we learn something interesting about Nicodemus. Not only was he a Pharisee, but he also had some more credentials. He was a ruler. That means he was a, a Pharisee who got to sit on the Jewish high council, otherwise known as the Sanhedrin. That gives Nicodemus a seat of power and a position of prestige in all the people's eyes. And for a rabbi like Nicodemus, who already comes from a people who take great pride in the flesh, that is, in this case, literally an ethnic pedigree stretching all the way back to Father Abraham, it's easy to see how the leaven of the Pharisees, pride, that's what Jesus called it, how that could be a problem for Nicodemus too. That pride must go. It seems like as well that the traditional rabbinical morning prayer could make this pride problem even more challenging for this rabbi Nicodemus. The uh, morning prayer that the rabbis prayed every, every day, Blessed are you, Lord our God, ruler of the universe, who has not made me a Gentile, a slave, or a woman. That's the ancient prayer of the rabbis. Going back thousands of years, and you'll find Orthodox rabbis who still pray to this day. With all of Jesus' prayers recorded for us in the Gospels, I'm not surprised to find that one missing. I'm happy to see it not there. But it's not missing for Nicodemus, Nevertheless, Jesus is still going to help him with his pride problem. Remember, too, Saul of Tarsus, a.k.a. St. Paul, the apostle to the Gentiles, he was also a rabbi, and he would have also been regularly praying that morning prayer. And St. Paul, after his encounter back on the Damascus Road, he would go on later to pen this well-known passage from Galatians. Check it out. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male or female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus, from Galatians 3. Maybe you picked up on this, but it sounds a lot like Paul right there had his former morning prayer in the crosshairs when he wrote that verse to the Galatians. He negated everything that he used to pray. Another interesting connection here is found in Acts chapter 16, where Paul is doing his missionary work. It's a short narrative passage where you find all three of these kinds of people 
being added to the growing Christian church, the baby Christian church. You'll find there in that same passage of Acts 16, a woman, a slave, and a Gentile all coming to faith in Christ. It's a beautiful scene. So now it's Nicodemus' turn to get the Jesus treatment. Nicodemus comes to see Jesus at night. How significant was that? Well, it's hard to know for sure, but in verse 19, which is just beyond our gospel reading, Jesus says this, this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people love darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. Everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light lest his evil deeds should be exposed. So knowing John, the gospel writer, his use of light and darkness throughout his entire gospel, he may be subtly saying that by Nicodemus coming to Jesus at that late hour at night, he was stepping out of the darkness and into the Lord's marvelous light, or just beginning that process. The light, of course, being Jesus, whom John describes in chapter 1 as the true light, which gives light to everyone. Nicodemus starts off the conversation with Jesus with an acknowledgement that we know you are a teacher come from God on account of all the miraculous signs that you do. Now, who's that we? That Nicodemus is there by himself. But that we is probably a few other Pharisees who are keeping a low profile, keeping it uh, quiet about their admiration for Jesus, lest uh, some kind of reprisal um, makes, makes it their way from the other Pharisees who aren't too positive on Jesus. With that intro, Jesus just cuts right to the chase now, as he so often is wont to do. Almost comes off like a non sequitur sometimes when you're having these conversations with Jesus. But he gets to the important stuff, cuts through it all. It all. Jesus gives Nicodemus two truly, truly statements right out of the gate, and then a third one later on. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. What do you think about that, Nicodemus? And then, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. I doubt if Nicodemus, as a trained, well-discipled rabbi, had ever heard those comments like that before. There are some definitely weighty statements on Jesus' part. Uh, here, I think Jesus has baptism in mind. If you trace back what we've seen already in John's gospel concerning both water and spirit, you could see in chapter 1, for example, where John the Baptist was busy baptizing people, and at one point he's asked if he was the Christ. Denying that, John instead pointed to Jesus, the Lamb of God, and said, I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came baptizing with water water, that he might be revealed to Israel. And John bore witness. He says, I saw the Spirit, so now there's the Spirit, descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. And then John the Baptist added, this is he who baptizes you with the Holy Spirit. So in John 1, the gospel writer seems to be setting up this discussion regarding the new birth, being born from above, born again. It's the same word in Greek born again, born from above. Um, That conversation that uh, Jesus later has with Nicodemus. So chapter 1, verse 12 says, But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, 
born of God. That's how you become a child of God. You are born of God. Um, notice this birth is taking out, it's completely taken out of man's dominion. It's not under man's control, not of the flesh, not of the will of man. Where this strikes a needful blow to Nicodemus' pride is at the point of control. Once again, as with our own natural birth, we like to think we exercise some control over our coming into being, both physically and spiritually. But it doesn't make any sense that we could have any say-so over our natural birth, as we looked at. And for Nicodemus, who's having a difficult time understanding this being born from above, uh, this doesn't make sense to him either. Nicodemus' way of thinking is more along the lines of wages earned, while God, on the other hand, offers salvation to all as pure gift, gift of grace. You can't buy it. So in verse 8, Jesus really rests this new birth uh, into the kingdom of God from the hands of man. He says this, the wind, by the way, that's also the same word for spirit, uh, wind and spirit. Jesus says, the wind blows where it pleases. You do not know where it comes from or where it's going. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. So you don't even know where it's going to be next. Completely out of man's control. This, this could cause a crisis now in the minds of some who insist that they must have at least some bit of control over their entrance into the kingdom of God. Especially if those minds have been expertly trained in the Torah, God's law if they've been careful to not just memorize the Torah, but also keep all 613 laws commanded by God in the Jewish scriptures. That's our Old, Old Testament. Fasting, almsgiving, morning prayers are just the beginning acts of piety that these disciplined rabbis-to-be have been doing from the time of their birth. And they've been re repeating and repeating. And now they would be completely baffled by this free gift. How could none of this count that all this works that I do? Then here comes St. Paul, a trained Pharisee himself. He comes along and says, from our Romans passage, now to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the wicked. What is going on here? I'm sure um, Nicodemus is wondering. Paul says, this one who's wicked, who doesn't work, but just trusts Jesus, his faith is counted as righteousness, just like for Abraham. That's amazing, Romans 4, 5. This is what Jesus was saying to Nicodemus, that whosoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Whosoever believes. Now, that might have been hard for Nicodemus to get his mind around, but it's good news for rank-and-file sinners the world over, right? It takes faith. Nicodemus is going to have to trust Jesus at his word. Faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the message of Christ. The Spirit is pleased to work where? Where the good news of Jesus is preached and taught. That's where you'll find the Spirit working. Like the Spirit hovered over the deep in the Genesis creation account, where God's word went forth with power. Let there be light. Let there be division between the waters. The Spirit was hovering over that. Um, like a mother over her brood. And that's where the Spirit is pleased to create now as the preached word goes out and into our ears. The Spirit's there to create a new creation in Christ. 
It could be at the baptismal font, where there is both water and the word. The Spirit also, also wishes to indwell those gathered at the Lord's table, at the altar, in accordance with Christ's words of institution of the sacrament. Do this for the strengthening of your faith, so that it might endure, your faith might endure to the very end of the age. Like Paul, in the end, Nicodemus would place his faith in Christ, I'm glad to report, as evidenced by Nicodemus caring for the crucified body of Jesus, along with another Jewish leader by the name of Joseph of Arimathea, whose tomb they laid Jesus in. So it would seem that the word then that Jesus shared way back with Nicodemus in the beginning of John's gospel, it bore fruit, the fruit of salvation. Jesus said, no man can come to me unless the Father draws him. Later in John, he told his disciples, you did not choose me, I chose you to go into the world and bear fruit that will last. And the Apostle Paul chimes in here, no one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. So these verses certainly sound like God's kingdom is clearly out of our hands, out of man's hands. But the good news is, it's in the merciful hands of a God who so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. He's got got it covered. He's got you covered. He's got the whole world in his loving hands. Amen. And now may the peace of God that surpasses all understanding keep your hearts and mind in Christ Jesus. Amen.